Does the Bible condone and even promote abortion in the case of infidelity? Well, this is a position that some people hold, and in fact, it was brought to my attention that one theologian, or their so-called, holds this view. So let's take a look at what these people actually argue and see what the Bible has to say about the topic. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I am William Dyer, and this is Dyer Conversations. Now, of course, it is May 2022, and there is a big decision going on in the Supreme Court right now with the possible overturning of Roe v. Wade, which is the Supreme Court decision about abortion. And so with social media nowadays, people are taking to social media to voice their opinion. And it was brought to my attention by one of my friends, and they were asking me, hey, what does the Bible actually say here in Numbers chapter 5? Because it looks like some people are saying the Bible promotes abortion. So they sent me this link to a guy's Instagram feed. And I'm going to tell you this guy's name. I'm going to put it up here on the screen if you're watching uh, my podcast here on YouTube. The guy's name is The Kevin Garcia. Now, the first thing to do whenever somebody tells you, hey, this is what uh, I'm telling you the Bible says, or I think that God uh, wants you to do in your life, is check your sources, okay? Check your sources. What sort of credentials does anybody have? What sort of reputation, what portfolio does this person have in order to tell me this is what the Bible actually says? Because there's so many voices out there today on every topic, including Christianity and including the Bible, that you got to filter. You got to do even more due diligence today to filter through these people who are just keyboard warriors, you know, and people who have what we call uh, Google degrees. That is, I can Google something and say, oh, I know what it, I know what this means, rather than actually having a working knowledge of that topic, whatever field it is, not just in the Bible. So I went to this guy's Instagram feed. I started checking it out. There's a couple things I noticed. If you go to his feed, you'll notice that uh, he is called a spiritual coach and also a mystical theologian. That's an interesting combo. His pronouns he lists as they, he, she. And so this person, the Kevin Garcia, claims in a in an Instagram post, and I'm going to put this post here on the screen right here, that Numbers chapter 5 actually promotes and prescribes abortion in the case of a suspected infidelity by a woman. What I do want to do is read this one paragraph of his post where he says this. Understand, the Bible has a lot to say about stuff and ambiguous about others because writers of the Bible could not have imagined the world we live in now, and the Bible has nothing to say about modern abortions. Well, I don't know how else to say this. With all due respect, the gentleman is wrong on so many levels right off the bat. One of the verses that I want to give you right here, and I could give you many, pretty staple verse that we turn to when we talk about the relevance of the scriptures for the Christian in today's world. And that's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 through 17. The Bible makes a claim about itself, and it says this, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So all of Scripture is not only inspired by God, but it's useful for us, for us Christians, to teach us, to correct us, to reprove us, so that we can be adequate for every 
good work. And that's not just for the first century world or the ancient Israelites when they read, you know, the law of Moses and the prophets. It's useful for everybody in every culture throughout all the time. The Bible also makes many other claims about itself. Like, for example, in Hebrews 4.12, it says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, right? It's not a dead word. It's a living word. It's always going to be applicable. So it's not just something that is only applicable back in the day. It's applicable in today's world to the modern world. So this guy holds a position that is so far off based on the basic Christian position of the scriptures and what they claim about themselves. And with all jokes aside, I also want to point out the gentleman is very confused on, again, very basic Christian teaching, and that is of who creates our identity. You see, he claims in this post right here, at the very end, he says, what do I know? I'm just a, I'm not going to read that word. You can read it for yourself. Who reads the Bible and believes what I see there, you know? Just a Bible-believing Proverbs 31 woman. So there we see some, some pretty heavy confusion about his identity. He says he just reads the Bible and just believes what he sees and then calls himself a Proverbs 31 woman. And I would like to ask this guy, again, with all due respect, have you ever read the first chapter in Genesis? I mean, the very first chapter of the Bible, verse 27, when it says that God created man in his image, male and female, he created them. And in that chapter, in chapter 2, we learn that God created these two distinct human beings, male and female, to be united in marriage so they could honor and glorify God. And that is a consistent message throughout the Bible, is that God has created man and woman distinct but both in his image. And in American culture today, we hear the opposite, that gender is fluid, that, you know, you can pick whatever your identity is. There is no God, and, you know, he's not going to define who we are. We and our feelings define who we are. So check your sources, right? Here's a guy who doesn't believe the scriptures when it comes to God creating our identities. He doesn't believe the scriptures, proclamations, that they are living and active and they're applicable for us in today's world as much as they are uh, in past times. And so why should we believe this guy when it comes to what the Bible actually says about abortion? Now, the second thing I want to say is this. We got to take a step back sometimes as Christians, and we have to realize some of the smartest men and women who have ever walked the face of this planet, have been Christians and have been Christian theologians. And there has been 2,000 years of scholarship. So just take a step back and just think to yourself, hmm, I wonder, I wonder why Christian theologians have never talked about this as being a viable option as an interpretation of this passage. Maybe it's because this guy is just being a keyboard warrior. He doesn't actually have the credentials to know what he's talking about. So let me give you some of the quotes from the early church to show you that the Christian message has always been the same on the abortion issue. It has never changed, and it's never been ambiguous. These are some of the top literature from Christians in the first five centuries. So number one, the Didache, which was basically a handbook for 
Christians who are just beginning. It's like a Christianity 101. Here's your booklet to learn the basics of Christianity. The booklet says this, you shall not slay the child by abortions. Next reference, the letter of Barnabas. He says, you shall not destroy your conceptions before they are brought forth, nor kill them after they are born. Now to pause right there and just let you know, what we do in America, it's pretty atrocious when it comes to abortion. It is horrendous. It's a great evil, but it's not new. The Romans and the pagans back in the early days of Christianity, they were doing abortions as well. In fact, they were even killing kids once they were born if they were undesirable for some odd reason. And if you think that we're far removed from that, you should hit me up in the comments and I will point you to some philosophers who are in our universities today who are pushing for that very mindset that it's okay to commit infanticide. Next letter, Tertullian. He says, the mold in the womb may not be destroyed. And finally, St. Augustine, probably one of the most influential theologians in all of church history, says this, sometimes their sadistic licentiousness goes so far that they procure poison to produce infertility. And when this is of no avail, they find one means or another to destroy the unborn and flush it from the mother's womb. For they desire to see their offspring perish before it is alive. Or if it has already been granted life, they seek to kill it within the mother's body before it is born. So here Augustine basically goes off and says, these people are so wicked that they take poisons to try to have an abortion. And if that doesn't work, they try to find some other way. And if that doesn't work, they're just going to keep going at it until they can actually make the abortion happen. And he calls these people sadistic. Christians have always had the same message. Now, let me make this very clear. This does not mean that if somebody has had an abortion, they cannot find grace at the cross. Absolutely, you can. It is not an unforgivable sin, but it is a sin. And if you are a Christian and you know that you have had an abortion in the past, listen, if you've repented, you have been forgiven. You're not a second-rate Christian at all. Please, that's not the message. But the message on the act of abortion is very clear and has always been clear. It is murder. It is not condoned. And that the life in the womb is life. And it is not a glob of tissues. It is as much a human as anybody else who gets to be called a human is a human. Now to turn to the actual passage this guy brings up. Numbers chapter 5, verses 11 through 31. You can read the passage in its entirety, for yourself. We're not going to do that. But what I do want to point out is a couple of key verses in here to help us to see where the controversy lies. Number chapter 5 is a little weird right off the bat. Okay, let's think about this context. You have a man who thinks that his wife might have committed some sort of adulterous act with another man, but he doesn't have any proof. There's no witnesses. He didn't catch her in the act. There's no proof. And so there's a prescription here that he is to bring her to the priest with a meal offering. And within this meal offering, there's going to be a certain oath that the woman is going to subject herself to, to try to figure out whether she's innocent or guilty. And so let's look at here at verse 17 in the text. It says, And the priest shall take holy water in an earthenware, earthenware vessel, and he shall take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. And so along with bringing his wife in this meal offering, 
the woman stands before the priest. The priest takes a jar, puts some holy water in it, and then he puts some dust in it, and he mixes it up. So this is going to be kind of bitter water. And he's going to make her take an oath. And the oath basically says that, hey, if you're innocent, nothing's going to happen. But if you're guilty, this is what's going to happen. Verses 21 through 22 tell us. Then the priest shall have the woman swear with an oath of the curse, and the priest shall say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people by the Lord's making your thigh waste away and your abdomen swell. And this water that brings a curse shall go into your stomach and make your abdomen swell and your thigh waste away. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. Okay, so here's kind of where the controversy lies. That she's to drink the water, she's to take the oath and say, if I'm innocent, nothing's going to happen. But if I'm guilty then my abdomen will swell and my thigh well will waste away. Now, the thigh is kind of a euphemism in the Old Testament referring to possibly the sexual organs. And so what is interesting is that when you go back to the Kevin Garcia's Instagram, he uses a um, translation that doesn't give us the passage is saying your thigh wastes away and your abdomen swell. Rather, it says your womb will miscarry and your abdomen swell. So why is there this just grave distinction between one translation and another? I mean, you shall miscarry versus your abdomen swelling. That's two completely different things. Well, to his credit, he, well, I guess he's using the NIV because I've only found two translations that actually translate it, your womb will miscarry, and that's the NIV and the New Revised Standard Version. So I'm guessing he's using one of those two uh, versions. Every other Bible that I have found, let me know if you found something different, translates it like I read to you that your thigh will waste away and your abdomen swell. So what's the difference? Your womb will miscarry or your thigh will waste away. We have to understand what happens in the, in the matter of translation. When you go from one language to another language, you can never go word for word. You have to sometimes realize that there's um, euphemisms, there's figures of speech, and there's idioms that will not translate word for word. So in English, if I said, does the cat have your tongue? What I mean is, why are you not responding? Why are you being silent? But if I translated that word for word into, let's say, Chinese, they might look at me like, well, I have three heads. Like, what are you talking about? Does a cat have your tongue? Because they don't have that idiom. It doesn't make any sense to them. So a translator would have to take my words there and find some sort of equivalent Chinese proverb or euphemism or idiom, or maybe just translate it word for word and put a little note in there and go, well, this is kind of what they're trying to say in order to help us to understand what the original language is saying. So here in Numbers, the actual literal original language says your abdomen will swell. What has happened is that the translators for the NIV and the NRSV have taken that to be an idiom based on the entire context, which I believe that they're incorrect, and so do a lot of other translators, hence why they're the only two who put it this way. They take the entire context and go, oh, by abdomen swelling, it must mean that she's going to be pregnant and have a miscarriage. And so they translate it, your womb will miscarry, in order to try to make the language, in their opinion, a little bit more clear. But notice what they've done 
is they put their own interpretation of the passage into their interpretation. So when you read that, you're not actually reading the original words as they should be translated. You're reading the translator's interpretation of what they think the passage is talking about. So the question now becomes, is this passage talking about the woman will miscarry or something else happening? So just to be clear, the actual literal words are, your abdomen will swell. The question now is, what does it mean that her abdomen will swell? Does it mean that she's going to have a miscarriage or something else? Well, notice that in this passage, nowhere do we get any hint, any indication, any language that says that she is pregnant. There is no language here. There is no, you know, hey, he thinks she committed adultery because she's starting to look like she has a baby in the womb. No, there's nothing like that. It simply says that he believes that she has committed adultery and they're going to do this ritual. Is the ritual weird? Yes. Why do they do the ritual? We don't really know, to be honest with you, but that's the ritual. The question is, were they doing this as a prescriptive act to kill a baby that was in her womb, which is what the Kevin Garcia is saying, or is it some sort of ritual they were doing where if she was guilty, she was going to get some sort of other sickness that had nothing to do with a miscarriage or an abortion? Well, the reason why it says that your thigh will waste away and your abdomen swell is because God is giving the consequences to her that the very things, the, the organs of her body that she used in order to commit the act of adultery will be the things that reap the ramification. So she used her body to commit adultery. Those parts of her body, her room and her sexual organs, they will waste away. How do we know this? We get a clue here in verse 28. Look at verse 28. He says, but if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, she will then be free and conceive children. That is, when she is innocent and nothing happens from her taking this oath and drinking this water, she will be able to continue to conceive or future to conceive children if she doesn't have any already. So the opposite of that is that if she's guilty, she will no longer be able to conceive children or not ever be able to conceive children because she's committed this act. So what is the passage actually trying to teach us? Yes, is the ritual weird? Absolutely. Why did they do it that way? We don't really know. But what God is saying is that if she actually committed the infidelity and she goes through this ritual, the ramification is that she will be infertile, not that God is going to abort her baby. And now somehow that disregards the rest of the Bible in reference to how God views life inside the womb and outside the womb and what he thinks about abortion. And if you're a Christian out there listening to this message, I want to tell you this, stand strong. There are always going to be people out there who hate the Christian position, who twist the scriptures to their own destruction. Don't fret. Go back to the scriptures Seek the truth, and you will find it.